Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Today we'll be discussing data and statistics and strategies relating to diversity and inclusion. And we have two wonderful guests. We have Keith Harrison of the law firm Crowell Mooring, where he serves as a partner as the co-lead of litigation group and on the management committee. We also are joined remotely by Aviva Will, who is the co-chief operating officer of Burford Capital. Aviva, Keith, welcome. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. There's a lot of different ways to look at diversity to to try and make an impact. Today, we're, we're only going to get to talk mostly about one, which relates to economic incentives. I guess, what do, what do we mean or what do the two of you mean when you think about using economic incentives to increase uh, the diversity of the profession? When I think of economic incentives and economic levers, I'm looking at things like uh, elevations of partnership in major law firms, opportunity to become a partner in a major law firm. I'm looking at leadership opportunities in law firms, things that have an economic component to them. We talk about client relationships and the opportunity to do the best work for the best clients. Those are the kinds of opportunities, economic opportunities, that have historically been denied to women and to minorities in the legal profession. Keith mentioned client relationships, and I think that's a perfect, a perfect place to start. Burford did some research in 2020 with general counsels. We interviewed many, many general counsels. Actually, a third party did that for us. And the majority, 52%, had no idea how origination credit or relationship credit was given at the firms that they use. So right there, you've got actual value, right, coming out of the origination credit that at most firms, you know, dictates a, a fair, fairly sizable component of some partners' compensation packages. And most clients aren't asking how that gets divvied up among the partners that work for that firm. That means that if a relationship has been with the firm for some years and it was originated two generations ago or even a generation ago by a white male, it's going to get passed down in all likelihood to another white male. And whether or not a woman or minority lawyer does all the work on the case matters not because they don't have a shot at that origination credit. Aviva, this seems so antiquated. It's like, and also inefficient. It's the person who first brought the client in the door who gets all the credit at some firms rather than perhaps the attorney who kept them from leaving or the attorney who got them to vastly expand their book of business with that firm. It's still the person who is like, oh, I brought Coca-Cola in the door, so Coca-Cola is mine. That's essentially right. And and I don't think it's for, you know, in any way bad faith. I think that's the way it's been done, so that's the way it's done. And I think there are ways to innovate there. And, and frankly, Keith's firm has done, I think, a remarkable job at, at, at shifting that. Joel, you're absolutely right. Um, this, this concept of origination is a terrific way to maintain the status quo at major law firms which means that, you know, the financial rewards go to a select few at the top of the totem pole. And that select few has historically been white men. Um, and so you've got to look at other ways to kind of break out of that mold. 
And Keith, if I might add, the structure is perfect for stasis because if you have a few people at the top of the totem pole keeping a large portion of the riches, their incentives are not to change a thing. Am I right? Absolutely. My firm takes a different approach. We don't have anything that's called origination credit in our firm. Um, in fact, if you use the term origination, um, you'd probably get a lot of dirty looks at our firm because what we try to do is divide the economic revenue based on uh, partners' contribution to bringing that revenue in. That could be that you were the first one to have a contact with the client, but if that was three years ago, then you know there's not that much benefit because you know today different people may be doing the work. There may be new matters that are opened by other partners, um, and they should share um, in that revenue stream. So we try to take a holistic view, and we try to take a view of what is the collaboration that led to this client coming in. Uh, we really don't have too many clients that were brought in. In fact, I dare say we have almost no clients in our firm that were brought in by the efforts of a single lawyer. It's usually a combination of skills, talents, contacts, uh, relationships that result in bringing in um, the firm's clients. And uh, we look at that and we decide compensation based, based on contributions, not based on origination. Keith, when you were restructuring this origination fee or partner comp, was diversity top of mind or was that just a, a useful benefit of just a more efficient, a more modern partner comp structure? Well, frankly, Joel, um, this has been historically the way that compensation has been done at Pearl and Morty. And it was not initially focused on um, increasing diversity. It was initially focused merely on facilitating, cross-selling, and collaboration. If you want people to cross-sell practices, if you want people to collaborate, then you have to provide financial incentives for them to do that. But one of the benefits is it has provided increased opportunity to compensate partners for their efforts in enhancing diversity. And so um, if you cross-sell a diverse lawyer, you bring in a female partner to work on the matter, um, you know, that's something that's going to be reflected um, in your compensation. You know, Keith is being modest about his firm. To be, you know, to be clear, what is it, Keith? 42% of the partners are women or diverse, and 42% of management at the firm is. And I think that actually is at the core of those kinds of approaches to, to, to lawyering, because there is a true actual valuing of that collaborative approach and of a diverse group of people actually getting to better outcomes. So it, it all flows, frankly, from a culture that values diversity. And I think that's one of the challenges that we've had as an industry is we say we do, um, and I think people genuinely do, but we don't actually know what that means until we do it. And so, you know, there is this sort of the status quo is, as you referenced before. And so you don't know how great it is until you do it. And you really aren't incentivized to do it because you like the status quo. So there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. And I think that's where other third parties can, can really make a difference. Whether it's general counsels who say that they care about this and who actually take action in that regard, or whether it's 
you know, folks like like funders like like Burford Capital who can who can play a role. But I think, you know, this is around aligning incentives to incentivize folks to actually do what they know or in their hearts is good and what they know I think they know in their brains will actually lead to 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 better outcomes. But that's very hard to do without um, real leadership from the top. We just talked through how how Keith and his partners are are treating origination compensation in a, in a different way or actually throwing out that term. What did you take away from the survey of general counsel and what would you say are best practices when it comes to attributing uh, partner origination in a more enlightened way? Sure. So the survey essentially found exactly what I said. General counsels want to do the right thing. They think it's important. By and large, they say that this is something that they care about with their law firms. That said, 80% of companies that we interviewed said they actually lacked a formal policy around diversity at the firms that, that represent them. So I think that's one place where even companies that, that care about this can really transform good intention into action by creating policies that they then track against. I'm a Big, big fan. We are big fans at Burford Capital of of data, and I think data speaks. So, so I think that law firms and corporates should be tracking how you know law firms can track who they send to pitches, who are the relationship partners, um, who they give opportunities to to argue motions, even you know if they're relatively more junior than other folks on the team. Um, there are lots and lots of ways that you can take very concerted and proactive approaches to to moving the needle here. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, I'm in the money business. So not surprising. I think it often comes down to the money, um, which isn't to say culture isn't hugely important, but sort of the way to get to cultural change is to create economic incentives that make it easy for law firms, which are businesses that are in existence to generate profits for their partners. It's not their only reason. Of course, it's a lofty profession, but but that's what they do. So, you know, how can we create the right economic alignments for law firms to want to move the needle in this space, I think is sort of the, the direction that, that I come from. And Aviva, I want to talk about something really interesting that you've been a part of on the investment side. But, you know, I guess one, one more touch point on partner comp is cross-selling or attributing value to marginal client attribution? Is that something that you've seen as helpful or that you think would be helpful in encouraging a more diverse legal profession? Well, I suspect Keith's firm is a perfect example of where it works. So so I do think, um, you know, I've certainly heard anecdotally from so many women partners over the years that they do all the work and get none of the credit. It's it's a pretty typical refrain. So yeah, I do think that's something that says actually, yes, you do get some of the credit for, you know, whichever component um, makes up, you know, how how any firm divides up revenue from from a case or a client. Um, I do think that that it is important to reflect the value that everybody brings to the table, whether it's relationship on the front end, whether it's, you know, representing the client in court or whether it's it's you know, the person who never gets out of the conference room and does all the heavy lifting behind the scenes. I think it's all valuable. And I think it contributes to, you know, hopefully the success of, of the firm's work. 
I think in the last few years, a lot of big law firms are looking for innovative approaches, as my firm is. And, you know, we tried to take some innovative approaches. Um, we have a couple of programs. Um, we have a sponsorship program. Sponsorship is historically the way that institutional clients were handed down from, you know, senior lawyer to more junior lawyer. Um, and, you know, often the senior lawyer would take uh, a junior lawyer who looks like him, reminds him of himself. Maybe went to the same prep school or the same college? Prep school or law school under his wing and hands down clients and client relationships in that way. Uh, we are looking to interrupt that standard form of sponsorship of helping out uh, and uh, running interference for younger lawyers, training younger lawyers um, by having formal sponsorship programs that connect lawyers that have these valuable relationships with lawyers who you know, might be overlooked, uh, especially women and racial minority lawyers. So actually putting them together and um, trying to develop that relationship, that sponsorship and protege relationship that can uh, lead to uh, you know, economic opportunities. That can really make someone's career. You know, we also have something we call the Crow Rule, which means that we are looking to interview diverse talent for all positions and we are requiring that they that we interview 40 percent racially or ethnically diverse or lgbt candidates and at least 50 percent gender racial ethnic and lgbt diverse candidates for lateral positions and for leadership positions so we're going to track it and we're going to grade ourselves on how we're doing in terms of, you know, interviewing uh, candidates and actually firing candidates. And finally, we've got a diversity pledge. Within five years, we're going to double the number of attorneys from diverse backgrounds at every attorney level. Not just associates, not just partners, but even equity partners. We're going to increase the percentage of women and diverse attorneys in leadership positions. And we've set diversity enhancement goals of adding 150 diverse lawyers, including women and minorities, um, over, you know, in the next five years. So, you know, these are ambitious goals, but, you know, we're confident that, that we can reach them. You know, on that front, goals can be ambitious. I think it's great to have ambitious goals because there's no other way you're going to get there, right? There's no other way unless you set the target. You may miss the target, but but you're not going to get there if you don't at least set it. And I think there are a number of other, you know, sort of stakeholders who are doing those sorts of things. So, for example, and maybe this is jumping around a little bit, but in the arbitration world, for example, there's an arbitration pledge to appoint a certain number of arbitrators or at least consider a certain number of arbitrators who are female or diverse in any arbitration. Um, and you see the numbers there ticking up relatively well. Not as well as we would like, but but you see real increases in the number of women and diverse arbitrators um, in the last, call it, decade. So I think that these sorts of pledges and and plans and goals are really important. Um, you know, not only to have them, but then of course to track against, and when you fall short, to to double double down on your efforts. You mentioned from your study of GCs that some had no policy, some might not have been thinking of it. So these type of uh, public-facing programs can help at least bring attention and awareness. Yeah, there are actually a number of federal judges 
across the country who have been very specific about amending their rules, the rules in their courtrooms to not only allow for, but encourage certain motions to be split so they can be argued by the lead partner, but then by somebody more junior in order to encourage law firms to bring more female and diverse lawyers literally to the table to argue motions. And I think that, you know, that's a very clear signal that it's not just clients who care, law firms who care, it's actually the courts too. Um, so we're all, we're all sort of moving in a positive direction. We all seem to want to do the right thing. And I think it's, it's these very specific, concrete um, initiatives and practices that are going to get us there. Aviva, you alluded to investment, putting your money behind diversity. Uh, Burford Capital has done something kind of interesting in that space. Maybe you could uh, walk us quickly through uh, what's going on with the equity project. Sure. So the equity project is pretty simple. It, it says exactly what it is. It's, it's an economic incentive to help close the gender and diversity gap in law. Um, it essentially says exactly what you said. Burford's going to put its money where its mouth is. So Burford is the largest legal finance provider in the world. We provide capital to law firms and corporates um, either to pay their legal fees and expenses, to monetize their claims early, um, all sorts of different kinds of products. But at bottom, we take financial risk around risk with our capital, our investors' capital, around wherever there is legal risk. So we traditionally have funded you know, all sorts of cases, all sorts of commercial cases, really globally. And one of the things that we found after a certain number of years, we went and did some data, data look, looking at our data um, and analyzing our data and realized that most of the opportunities that were coming to us were coming from white males running teams. And I run the investment function from day to day here at at Burford Capital. And there are a number of very senior women here who are part of my team. And we sort of looked around and said, how is it possible that that we're a big part of the investment decision-making process at Burford and we're not funding women? That was sort of a, an aha moment. So we developed the equity project essentially to, to rectify that. Um, and, and I spent probably the better part of like nine months to a year talking to women partners about why they were not taking risk on cases, why they weren't trying to, you know, go to their contingency committees and take risk in order to build out their own books of business. And what I found was that most women sort of were of the view that that was a very risky thing to do because either the committee would say, no, you're not ready, or if they were ready and they took the case and lost the case, they weren't going to have another opportunity to go back to the committee. And so they sort of stuck to their knitting a little bit and, and said, well, I'm not going to go out on a limb to do that because I'll, I'll spend all my, you know, firm capital, so to speak. Aviva, do you think this is a question of if you feel like you belong, if you feel like you're in the club, maybe you're more willing to, to take a risk, whereas if you feel a little bit more on the margins, you kind of have to toe the company line or, or be a little more risk averse? I probably couldn't have said that better. Um, anecdotally, and certainly not a science here, but anecdotally, the view was if a white man goes to the contingency committee and then gets approval to take the case and then loses the case, it was either not winnable or it's a learning curve and he'll do better next time. That may or may not be so, but that was certainly the impression that women had. And for that purpose, that becomes the reality. 
Um, so, so we sort of said, well, wait a minute. We think that women can and do as excellent work as, as their male counterparts. So we're very happy to take our capital and put it behind, behind um, women litigators. And so that's what we did. We initially allocated $50 million to fund women in litigation. That was back in 2018, the end of 2018. Uh, we then extended it to include an additional $100 million. So now it's $150 million total. And we extended the project to include not just women lawyers, but also racially diverse lawyers. And I think we, we hit on sort of a nerve, which is if Burford is willing to take the risk, that incentivizes the law firm. It's a lot easier for them to say yes now, because if the case loses, it's Burford's capital, not theirs. And it also incentivized them because they said, well, Burford believes in, in this particular lawyer, so gee, we should too. Um, and so there's this sort of very nice alignment. And what we found is that women are using the equity project and, and diverse lawyers are using the equity project, not just to fund individual cases now, but to really have conversations about you know, whether or not they take our funding what are the dynamics around making that decision for a firm to take risk? Fascinating. You know, at the end of the day, $150 million is a lot of, it's a lot of dollars. But when you think about how many dollars are spent at law firms, at big law annually, it's, it's really just a drop in the bucket. A small fraction. And so, so when I think about what we're trying to achieve, it's not just funding some cases. That'll be good. And, and you can be sure that we're going to we're tracking these cases and we'll see how they do relative to to Burford's general pool of capital and see if they resolve faster or within budget or any of those things that I think are very likely to happen. Well, you beat me to it. I wanted to ask, you said you love data. How is this? How is the equity project? Do we have any early numbers? How's it performing and stacking up against your traditional pool? We don't have publicly available early numbers, but I can tell you I'm very pleased with the portfolio as it's progressing. So maybe it'll turn out that you weren't just doing something for the good of diversity. Maybe you're just a, a savvy investor getting a, a great return. Well, I, I do I do have a duty to my investors, so that's exactly right. I, I don't think this is, this is good works. I think this is smart work. I think this is good, not just for Burford, but it's, but it's good for law firms because they're going to end up with larger books of business across the firm as a result because they've opened themselves up to finding new ways to bring in new clients and giving voice to women and diverse lawyers in leading those cases. So I think it's good business all around. Um, and, you know, certainly the, the, data will, the data will tell us in time. There's also a little bit of a loftier goal, I guess, and that is that at the end of the day, the way to get to the point at your law firm where you have a voice in how the culture is driven is by generating business, right? That's how it works. Rainmakers make decisions. And so if you can, if you can help women and diverse lawyers advance their careers individually by by helping them generate more business for the firm you then position them to be in you know executive committees contingency committees and the committees that matter where decisions for example about origination credit really get made a quick break for the lawyers out there who want cle credit for the course the code is five four three two one again that's five four Three, two, one. And now back to the interview. 
Well, Keith, as I mean, I guess at this point in your career, you're already darn near the top. Uh, but can you imagine, does it make sense to you how this could help younger female or diverse attorneys get access to, to cases that they might not otherwise see? Well, I think this is not only innovative um, and impactful, but I, I think the Equity Project is brilliant. I don't know of anybody in the legal industry who's putting $150 million in investing in diversity. But here's the thing, Joey. It's not just young lawyers. It's not just uh, you know, young minority women lawyers. I know, you know they will certainly benefit. Um, it's minority lawyers and women at every level because you you have you know there's there's a glass ceiling. There's so many women who are stuck at the non-equity level because the economics of their practice won't allow them to be catapulted into the equity level. And programs like, or a program like, I don't know of any other similar programs, but a program like the equity program, you know, can provide that boost to carry even a lawyer at my business who may have been stuck at the, at the non-equity level, you know, to equity level. I'll be very fascinated once those numbers become public, Aviva. I'm willing to bet that uh, the portfolio of the equity project outperformed Burford's other portfolio. And I think that's in part because uh, the lawyers who are working on those cases, the women and other minorities, you know, for this, for them, these cases, they present once in a lifetime opportunities. Uh, you know, these are huge, important cases for them. And you're talking about a group of lawyers who probably had to work much harder to get to where they were than other similarly situated lawyers may have. And so um, I, I was willing to bet um, a sizable amount. I'm not even a betting man. <laughs> Well, Keith, you know I'm not going to take the other side of that bet for many reasons. One, uh, one of which I, you know, I wouldn't want to, and two, I, I don't know, I don't know what you mean by sizable, but that's probably out of my budget. <laughs> and I take risk for a living, and there's no way I'm betting against you on that one, Keith. In fact, I'm very with you. Um, you know, there's one other point that might be worth mentioning that one of the components of the Equity Project is that. If and when a case resolves favorably, not only has Burford put its money behind the case to fund it in the first place, but Burford will take a portion of its own profits and contribute them to charitable uh, initiatives that are intended to promote women and diverse lawyers. So, you know, we're putting our money where, where our mouth is on the front end, but then also on the back end, because I do believe that this is a sort of virtuous circle and that the more we do, the more we do. So are these tools to kind of whittle around the edges or do you see a future where the profession no longer has to worry about diversity because the only diversity that will matter is of skill? Well, I'll, I'll take a shot at that. I think we are not only as a profession, but as a nation a long way from, from those lofty goals. Um, but you have to start somewhere. And I think, um, you know, I, I think, the legal profession is starting to get it. I think clients are leading the way, and clients um, that understand that diverse teams make, you know, uh, make better decisions, have better outcomes, and start to demand that kind of diversity. 
uh, and invest in that kind of diversity with law firms, promote it within their law firms as providing services, they're going to get better service. Keith, I have a question for you. I mean, we just had a conversation separately about ESG and, um, you know, we talked a little bit about greenwashing. How do companies avoid firms who are only paying lip service? And I'm going to make this up, or maybe it's a term. How do they avoid diversity washing where it's not a firm like like yours, where you have you know 40% uh, diverse representation and in, in the management level, but a firm where maybe there's one or two diverse partners who are just dragged along to the client pitches, may not even be involved in the actual case. Well, it's 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 frankly a challenge, Joel. I think um, because it's going to it takes a real level of intentionality for clients to look beyond you know, kind of that pitch meeting and uh, actually, you know, look into who's doing the work, which means that, uh, you know, they have to demand that information. Uh, frankly, though, we have a number of clients who are doing exactly that. And we look for those opportunities uh, to introduce women and diverse lawyers to those clients who have expressed an interest and said, look, you know, we want to meet some of your, uh, some of your diverse talent. Um, we even have mentor programs set up with some of our clients where we will take some of their in-house diverse talent into our firms and kind of have a mentor relationship. And the uh, client does the same on the other end so that clients get to see young diverse lawyers and get to work with them. Um, and you know, it kind of works both ways. So there are a lot of programs that provide those kind of opportunities. If clients are willing to look behind the veil, so to speak, look into who's actually doing the work, and as Aviva said earlier, who's getting the credit? We've mentioned diversity, diverse lawyers, diverse management, diverse partnership. I'm curious, and partly because it was just mentioned by Justice Thomas in, in oral arguments at the Supreme Court, where he said, you know, diversity means all things to all people. Is diversity something that you're having to define or that your clients have multiple definitions for? Well, I'll take a first shot. It's a great question. Uh, We do have clients that are defining diversity in different ways, but I think any effort to enhance diversity, no matter how you define it, is going to take us forward. (laughs) It's a path forward. And so that's why you don't worry about those kind of details. And they just are details. You have to look at the big picture and don't lose the forest or the trees. So if you focus on the trees and what is the person, what is not, we can get lost. Um, but as long as we're moving forward when it comes to diversity, as long as clients are making it clear to the law firm that this is important to them and they want to see it, that's the bottom line. That's what matters. That's what drives progress. I mean, we're, we're, we're having a conversation about diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity at a time when diversity is really in the spotlight at the highest levels. Uh, the Supreme Court's currently considering overturning affirmative action, race-based affirmative action. Is that something that would make it more difficult for you or for law in general to have a more diverse, inclusive profession? Great question, and I think the unfortunate answer is yes, it will make things more difficult. Let me explain why. So 
this becomes, from my perspective, a pipeline issue. Uh, my firm uh, represented before the Supreme Court in this case, uh, the historically black colleges, HBCUs, and we filed a legal brief to provide their perspective um, as uh, you know on on affirmative action, and um, you know their perspective is they embrace fully embrace affirmative action and, and use it uh, to enhance their student bodies. But also, we don't want to go back to a situation where we essentially have an educational system that's based on separate but supposedly equal opportunities because they're never actual equal. But from a pipeline perspective for law firms, what this could mean is fewer minorities getting into law school and as a result, a smaller pool of talent for us to draw from. And it's taken the last 50 years to get the relatively small pool, especially of minority lawyers, that we have today. If that pool shrinks, efforts of law firms to enhance their diversity uh, it's going to be choked and it's literally going to make it much more difficult. Keith Harrison is a partner at the law firm Crowell and Mooring. Aviva Will is the co-chief operating officer at Burford Capital. Aviva, Keith, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Joel. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Joel. And thanks, Keith. This was fun. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.